This is Chris Martin, and me and my buddy Kevin O'Connor, a.k.a. Kevin O'Everything, host an NBA podcast called The Mismatch. They call it The Mismatch because I'm awesome and Kevin is a gigantic nerd. No, no, that's not why at all, Chris. They call it The Mismatch because I have a brain and you're a loudmouth bozo. Good grief. (laughs) Anyway, listen to our amazing NBA podcast, The Mismatch. Or don't. We really don't care. We're probably going to win a million awards either way. <laughs> Chris, we do care. So don't say that. Please subscribe and listen to The Mismatch only on Spotify. Did you really call me a bozo? <laughs> this episode of The Ringer F1 Show is brought to you by eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, from superchargers and brakes to exhaust kits and beyond, eBay Motors levels your baby up to its peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride or your money back. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Mobile One. The Mobile One brand knows podcasts are a great escape. You can listen to people talking about living and maybe even driving. But of course, there's no substitute for the real thing. So the next time you're looking for an escape, Try an actual escape. Take this podcast for a ride in the car and immerse yourself in the drive because sometimes the best way to escape reality is to truly live in it. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash the ringer to learn more. It is the Ringer F1 show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I am Kevin Clark, jam-packed. Great show for you today. Chris Medlin joins to go over the first half lessons. We're at the midway point of the F1 season. Uh, we go through what we learned, what we haven't learned yet, what to look forward to in the second half. And then Alpha Towery driver Pierre Gasly joins in the second half. Really, really, really fun discussion. Um, so if you don't know, uh, we do a show called Slow News Day. It's a video show. It's on Twitter. You can find it on my Twitter at by Kevin Clark. Um, we do it normally with NFL players, although that's not um, always the case over the past couple of years. Uh, but we had George Russell on last year before Austin, and we had Pierre Gasly on this week. So we filmed it for a video show. Uh, but that show is about 10 minutes normally, and we did 20 minutes with Pierre. So we did the entire interview here um a little more technical questions about driving styles and and coming up through karting um really really interesting discussion with pierre who i I love talking to um it was funny because i asked him what he'd improved on over the course of his career and his answer was podcasting and i i I don't doubt it like he, he is a really 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 good uh voice in the sport i love talking to him um all right so we'll get to chris and pierre one housekeeping note i am as i said at the end of the last show uh, not going to be on the next two episodes. The very capable and awesome Megan Schuster uh, will host the next two dry, uh, race recaps. I'll be back in mid-August. I have to go on uh, an NFL training camp tour. I have to do, do my. Uh, I have to go do my normal job, uh, which is NFL training camps. So I'll be back in mid-August. I'll check in if there's news. Um, but Meg has it. It's the summer break, which really helps me. Uh, but yeah, so. See you guys in a few weeks. Leaving you with Chris and Pierre. Let's get to it. All right, joined now by Chris Medlin, racer, F1 correspondent. He's going to Paul Ricard this weekend. He's got a Cubs jersey on. Chris, how is someone in Southwest London wearing a 
Wrigleyville City Connect jersey right now? Well, one, because it looks good. Uh, two, because it's so damn hot. Uh, it's, yeah, like 40 degrees here. So what, I think 104 Fahrenheit. And um, I'm sat next to a fan that's trying to keep me cool, but a nice loose fitting shirt was ideal. Um, but yeah, and I'm, I'm just a big Cubs fan because I was lucky enough to time my first visit to Chicago when they finally got a World Series win and Incredible. played crazy. Yeah, so. Incredible. A NASCAR, by the way, is going to race to the streets of Chicago as of today, I think. They're announcing it. They're going to do a really cool street circuit around Chicago. So I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to see what they do with that because it's a pretty cool city to be able to do that in. Oh, absolutely. I'll be, if, if I can uh, find a reason to be there for that, I'll, uh, I'll head over and check it out because, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the city. It's great fun. I'm actually heading there for a few days during the summer break this year as well. So uh, they can't keep me away. Wow. Okay. That's good. That's good to know. The, the, the city of Chicago will receive you well, all of our, our great <laughs> listeners in Chicago. It's uh, 40 degrees in London, which is the hottest it's ever been. That's, that's Celsius, not Fahrenheit. So it's 104 degrees. Thank God they're not racing in England this weekend, Chris. Yeah, I mean, France isn't going to be much cooler. Yeah, um, I think like 93 Thursday, to 95. Yeah, yeah. Thursday when we're doing uh, media day, it's 37. Um, but we're kind of used to racing in kind of mid-high 30s, in, even in the European summer, but certainly uh-huh. when you go to the Middle East and stuff. So um, yeah, this would have been a real, real challenge. Less so, like the cars would have got hot, drivers would have struggled a bit, but the main challenge would have been when you've got open grandstands like we have at Silverstone. Um, yes. I mean, people would have been in a lot of trouble. So um, that's why, you know, we don't like to show people when it's hot and sunny. We like to show people normal British weather is cold, wet, grey. Um, <laughs> and, and then we just try and keep these heat waves for ourselves. But yeah, this one's a bit extreme. Um, tell me what I need to know about Paul Ricard. Um, I don't think it's the most popular track. You know, we have Pierre Gasly on after this, and he he kind of jokingly said it was the best track, and then he cr- cr- quickly was like, eh, it's, it's not. It's not the best <laughs> track. Um, going into it, uh, what do people need to know? Yeah, it's an interesting one, because the circuit itself kind of was going to wreck and ruin, and then uh, someone took it over, turned it into a testing venue. So that's why there's all these runoff areas and different layouts. And it's just so people that had a lot of money could go and drive a racing car in the south of France. And then they slowly <laughs> went from that point, okay, we could still turn this into a FIA spec racing circuit that can hold a Grand Prix. And uh, yeah, it's. I actually think the layout is quite cool, but the way the mm-hmm. runoff areas are, yeah. it's going to be a bit like Austria. Everyone's going to be moaning about track limits. Um, they're going to have to police it a lot. It's It's got potential for overtaking. It's got a couple of good long straights. Uh, it's going to be hot, as we just mentioned, so tires are going to be an issue. And you do see some pretty big mistakes in terms of, you know, if you get it wrong in some of these high-speed corners, you're going off at quite a rate of knots. Probably won't reach a barrier. You have to do pretty well to get to a barrier at this track. But um, yeah, you can go you can go spinning off at pretty high speed. So um, I don't think it's actually that bad. And it had a poor rep because uh, initially traffic was a nightmare for the first race back. And everyone had this bad experience in terms of actually being there. And mm-hmm. we got a boring race that first year and everyone was like, okay, poor Ricard's rubbish. But the last few years have been pretty good. We've seen some pretty good fights. Two, three years ago, I think there were four wide on the final lap in the in the battle for the points. Uh, and then we had Max against Lewis with a good strategic race and some overtaking last year. So um, yeah, I'm kind of quietly confident that it, it won't be a, a ball fest. It's uh, it, it's an intriguing race. I'm glad. I mean, like, I think that to, you know, it's about two and two hours, three hours from from Monaco. Um, so it's a different type of race, different part, I guess, of the south of France. I will say this: I was in the south of France in May. Um, did not anticipate how many speeding tickets I could get by camera. 
<laughs> like I yeah, wasn't okay, speeding. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't like. No one warned me. There wasn't like the the ways maps thing where there's like speeding camera ahead. Apparently they're just everywhere. And about a week ago, I got a series of emails from the French government uh, telling them how much I owe, and it's not an insignificant amount of money. It was tough. Yeah, that they'll rack up pretty quick because, like you say, you don't know you've got it, and they're quite subtle. I think their speed cameras are gray. Here in the UK, we're, we're polite. We make ours bright yellow, so you see them. And we put a and sign there's up like to signs. say there's speed there's cameras. Signs, yeah. like, yes, there's signs like five blocks ahead, so you know. <laughs> in France, this is a crime. This is an international incident. <laughs> so once I got done by a, a police woman who was actually had a speed gun on some country roads, and I remember coming around a corner, not ridiculously fast, but slightly over the speed limit, and because um, it's just a lovely winding road, and seeing it and being like, oh no. But then I saw her face, and I think she clocked it and then saw an English number plate and thought, I can't be bothered chasing that. That's not going to be worth it. <laughs> now the world's got a lot more connected, hasn't it? So you yeah. can't get away with it anymore. And they they chase you, they find you. So um, yeah, I'll have to be careful because I'm actually doing that drive from Nice Airport across to Paul Ricard. I'm flying that's in a little kinda, bit further that's, out. That's around where I got it. That's around where I got it. Watch yourself. I'm I'm, I'm funding <laughs> the French government for the next couple of years. Um, all right. So let's get to first half lessons on, on what we learned. Fascinating first half. And I think that things flip so quickly because I was thinking in my head, you know, I was thinking, oh, m- most disappointing team. Well, it's obviously in general Mercedes, but it feels like that's been such a uh, inevitability for the past month, two months. It's almost beyond conversation. Um, but I want to take the f- the first half as a whole. Um, we'll start here. What has been the thing that surprised you most over the course of the first half with the new regulations, with with the, the new risers and fallers within teams? Is there something where you say like, I just did not see that coming, Chris? Uh, yeah, I did not see Mercedes staying so underwhelming. I, I think it was understandable that they weren't quite at it from the start when they took the risk they did with the type of car they've got. But with the kind of people they've got there, the resource they've got there, and recent history, I thought they'll solve their problems. They'll they'll come into the fight. And to be here now, and we're kind of hoping that next year is going to, next year, sorry, next week is going to be yeah. a strong race for them. Paul Ricard should suit. Um, then... There's no guarantee it's going to be. You know, it's not. Yeah. Oh, well, Merck will definitely be in the fight for the win. And there's other, other tracks that we're going to go to where you're like they're really going to struggle. I mean, Hungary, I don't think it's going to be particularly good for them the week after. So, it's a bit of a surprise or a big surprise that that hasn't really improved. Um, as a positive one, it's probably been how well these cars have worked because, mm-hmm. as much as it's still not easy to follow a car, it's a lot easier. The drivers are racing in a different way. We're seeing some crazy action that's just great to watch. I mean, Esteban Ocon described it as like racing go-karts again when the <laughs> season started um, and that you can take that approach in these cars. And I think by making that bigger step, it's such a radical change. It could have been kind of halfway towards that or just a, a step in the right direction. This was a big leap in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And we've still got a few things to iron out and improve on, but I think they're in a, a really good spot with where we started with these cars. And it's bunched the field up. There's less than two seconds between all 10 cars. So... It's as much as you've got two that are clearly ahead. Beyond that, they're also much more closely matched. Um, that is actually, I think, quite positive for the coming years as well as this year. So let's let's stand Mercedes here for a second. So Paul Ricard feels like the type of place Mercedes should have have a good weekend. Um, is there? And I know it. We, we keep entertaining the idea Mercedes is back on every single midweek episode since since I, I March, late March. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I I couldn't even. Somebody can do a supercut figuring out when the first time we overrated Mercedes going into a weekend was. Um, but do you expect at any point for there to be a weekend where uh, or a stretch where it is a even though Mercedes can't get in the title hunt just mathematically that there's a a big three again just over the course of a weekend or a couple of races, Chris? 
Yeah, I'd hope so. Um, I think this weekend we'll see how close they can really get. Like Silverstone, they were in the mix for the win there. Uh, yeah. But that was the way the race had panned out. And I think if we'd have seen a clean race from Verstappen, a clean race from Leclerc, those two might have been a bit too far away from Lewis um, for the majority of it. But, you know, they, they were certainly the closest they've been. And yeah. one thing that Mercedes have said, it was Barcelona when they upgraded their car. That's when they unlocked something that said, okay, we're on the right path now. But they're playing catch up from that point. So... After the summer break, I think when we head to, we've got a few tricky places, but once we get like Singapore out of the way, where I imagine they'll really struggle on a bumpy street circuit, and we get to um, Japan, I think Japan, they'll be good. Austin is a bit of a TBC because it's bumpy, but the rest of the circuit should suit their car. Um, Mexico is a kind of lower downforce track and can really mix things up a little bit as well um, because the altitude. Brazil, I think they actually could be fairly strong. Um, it, it will depend by then if they've just kind of got a bit more of a handle on their uh, ride height issues and, and their bouncing and porpoising. But also the FIA has made changes that could bring the others closer together by mm-hmm. making a few technical rule changes that mean uh, certain ways of running the floor are now illegal and that might hurt Red Bull from the sounds of it. So yeah, it could be that the top two come back towards Mercedes a little bit as well. But I think just the way that everything's taken so long, it, I, I still believe you know they're committed to this car, they'll improve it it just will be late in the season that we finally see consistency yes. from it. Is there a, you know, one of the interesting things about regulations, and this is the first regulation change, huge regulation change I've seen since I came into the sport, which was 2017. Um, and so I know there's an ebb and a flow once your regulation changes of the FIA makes these changes going forward and they, they tweak it um, beyond what we've seen already um, with some of the changes they're going to make to porpoising. Um, is there a, a logical in the paddock discussion point about what is going to be next for what they'll change maybe next year going forward? Like what will be the regulation changes within the regulation changes, Chris? So at the moment for next year, not a huge amount. It's all, it is all focused on porpoising and making bigger changes than they can do right now. So they can kind of put in um, fixes to issues with the current yeah. rules. Uh, but next year, they can just tweak the rules completely in certain areas to try and just eradicate the problem. So um, the way they're going to allow the floors to be designed is going to change next year, which they believe will have some kind of benefit to preventing porpoising. Beyond that, most of the talk is still around 2026. One of the things that with Formula One, when you do big regulation changes, is you do need time to research them, to plan yep. them, to let teams know what's coming. And right now, if you keep changing it every year, like teams will be quite a long way into their development of next year's car already by now, because a lot of it will relate to this year anyway, so they can pull certain developments forward. But um, just the lead time of development of certain parts, you need to be focusing on it and running the wind tunnel, running CFD stuff on next year's car. So you're already looking at the 23 car being worked on. So you can't make major changes for then. Yeah. If you make them for 24, there's only 24 and 25 left before what's set to be a major regulation change anyway. And that's because of changes to the engine rules. Mm-hmm. So they want to do it all at once where, okay, new engine comes in. That's the time where we could you know, maybe change the chassis structure or certain other key issues. And from there, um, you're kind of looking at, okay, let's try and make the car smaller, lighter, faster. Mm-hmm. They go with those sorts of targets. So then you work backwards from that big overall view and go, okay, what what do we know of the regulations now that we can then implement for that? So um, they're kind of in that planning phase of 2026 at this stage. And that'll be over the next 18 months, two years. They'll really hone those down, sign them off towards the end of 2024, uh, and teams can then crack on in 25, designing the cars ready for the next season. That's the one thing, when we had Matthew Summerfield on this, I think it was the first episode where we started to talk about the actual sport, um, is 
I think we all sometimes have soccer brain or football brain where we're saying, okay, these guys made adjustments at halftime. They're going to go out there or they made one sub, whatever. And Matthew was like, no, slow down. Like even, even these things we call quick adjustments are scripted a month in advance. You know, like, oh, like there's a little bit you can do, but it's not like when these guys are, you know, breaking curfew on a Friday or whatever to, to work around the clock, they're making huge wholesale changes to the cars. It's very, very, very small things over the course of um, over over a couple of weeks. Uh, is there a driver who has surprised you? We'll start with the good first half of the season, Chris. Uh, the good. Uh, Sergio Perez has surprised me to the good, being close to the max than I expected. And with a bit of luck, could be even closer in the points. Um, I'd say George Russell has in a tough Mercedes. Mm. Uh, I, I did expect him to be close to Lewis, but I, I imagine the way that that's panned out for that team has kind of lent it to need to lean on Lewis's experience a bit more. But George was so consistent. That really, really impressed me. Not to have a dip, not to have like an off weekend as he found his feet um, in those first, what, six, seven races. And that was a very much a good. Uh, Guan Yu Zhou as well, actually. as mm. He's the only rookie. And he's not had the results to really show it, but I luck. will put, yeah. I, and I put myself in the kind of camp of, uh, he's, he's a pretty bog standard Formula 2 driver. And because he's from China, they're thinking there's a big market there. So he's getting a lot of help and opportunity to reach F1. But I'm always reminded, if you look at certain drivers like Stoffel Van Dorn, who looked incredible in Formula 2, and then they reach F1 and they struggle. It's a whole different ball game, a whole different type of car, a load of other pressures. Some drivers suit it, some don't. Uh, and more often than not, it's, good drivers coming through continue to be good. And sometimes it's good drivers coming through then drop off because it just doesn't fit. But you also rarely get, and I think Joe is one of these situations where a driver fits well in Formula One, just kind of adapts well, adapts quickly, learns quickly. Uh, and he's done that. So as much as I didn't expect him to do anything impressive when he came out of Formula Two, he's really impressed me in Formula One. Very consistent, um, very clinical. I mean, it, you know, his race craft has actually been very good. He was totally blameless in that Silverstone crash. Um, He's had some like, early on as well, made some excellent moves to get into the points in his first race. Uh, and he's had a few other races that looked like they would have given him points too. But as you said, he was a bit unlucky. So um, yeah, very, very pleasantly surprised by uh, how Joe's performed and the potential he's shown. When a guy's going from F2 to F1, is there something that we all tend to overlook on... I mean, obviously everybody is better and the consistency is always going to be there. You can't even go wide and, or, or you're going to be punished. Is there something though that the, the layperson overlooks when they're talking about going from the second best to the best in the world? Um, a skill, uh, a barrier for entry, just as far as, as talent goes, that, that differentiates someone like Steffel Van Dorn, who you were referencing, who was great in F2, got to F1, you know, got, got, bullied around by Alonzo on the track and, and was just out. I think he's, he's in Formula E now. Um, he is, yeah. Yeah, and so, like, and, and I don't think he's ever going to get an F1 chance ever again. Um, is there something like that, or is it just sometimes guys get there and they're just not as good as we thought? Well, I think one thing for a lot of people to remember is, unlike IndyCar, Formula 1 has power steering. Now, Formula right. 2 doesn't. So a Formula 2 car is actually very similar to an IndyCar, but then you come across to Formula 1 and there's a whole different feel to the car when you get in it. If anything, I think George Russell explained it well. That he says it's a lot nicer to drive. It's a lot smoother. It's a lot almost calmer. But to find that lap time then, you have to kind of feel it in a different way. So certain drivers that have come through Formula 2 and worked out how to really wrestle with a car and feel performance through yeah, something a bit more brutal than going into a Formula 1 car maybe lack that bit of finesse. Um, for others, it works the other way that they might struggle with the with the kickback of the power steering and, and the physicality that comes from your arms and your shoulders rather than just your neck. 
And then they get into a Formula One car and it's all a bit more relaxed and it suits them a bit more, all a bit calmer. So I normally think that's the biggest difference. And it's that and the number of people working with you. Like around mm. the Formula Two team, you know everyone really well. You travel with them all the time. It's a small, small crew. You've got, you know, people that you can count on two hands in terms of working on your car. You go to Formula One and you're talking about hundreds of people in a team to build those two cars for you. It's pretty overwhelming. So uh, I think that as well is a bit of a mental game when someone then feels the responsibility um, of what a team is doing. And add, add on top of that, the adaptability you need in terms of the car being developed and changing. Mm -hmm. You can get used to a Formula Two car and you're running it for three seasons and that car hasn't changed. Um, it's the same car and you're just working on setup the whole time. In Formula One, you're lucky if it doesn't change within three races. Uh, it's something changes that changes the balance of the way it reacts. So you've got to be a lot more adaptable once you reach Formula One. Fascinating. Um, all right. Flip side, a, a driver who surprised you in a bad way. Uh, going to sadly start with Daniel Ricciardo. Mm -hmm. I, I really thought he was going to get it sorted this year. I thought the signs looked pretty good in, even in preseason testing initially with this new type of car. He then got COVID, which did set him back a bit. But yeah. just as the first few races started to kind of confirm that I thought he'd be okay this year. For him to tail off again has been really surprising and disappointing. And again, he's a driver who's had a lot of bad luck or a lot of issues. It's not just on his performances. Um, the amount of times a team has come out and said that they found an issue with his car after a weekend uh, or they've made mistakes. has actually been quite frightening for a team like McLaren because they hadn't been making them in the past. But uh, Daniel's experienced enough and good enough to kind of find ways around that. And yeah, that's been a bit of a, a disappointment from, from my perspective. Um, I don't think now I could say Lewis Hamilton because first half of the year, there was a lot of bad luck involved, mm -hmm. but I think there was also a bit of readjusting needing for him from him. Understandably, like he's, he's so used to fighting for titles, fighting at the front. He'd come off the back of such a crushing end to 2021 and how hard must it be to then make sure you're performing at your absolute best off the back of that when your team is really struggling. Um, but I mean, he's hit his stride more recently and there were always flashes of that anyway. Um, so maybe that wasn't a reflection on him. Just maybe it was disappointing as a fan, not seeing him fighting at the front with Max and Charlotte, mm -hmm. continuing that storyline that we'd had from previous years. Um, I'd say as well, the way that things have gone for Aston Martin means I've been a little bit disappointed in the way things have gone for Vettel. Um, mm. I wanted a bit more for him. He's had some good races. He's had some bad ones. And, you know, as a four-time world champion, he probably should have um, more good ones than not. Um, but that's, again, partly down to his machinery. So that's yes. been a bit of a downer as well. But I, I guess one that I've probably missed out that I should have mentioned in terms of impressed, there's two. Um, Esteban Ocon, really under the yep. radar, uh, very positive, really, really performing uh, consistently. And Valtteri Bottas in the Alfa Romeo. Um, just the way he's performed. It's gone a bit quiet the last couple of races, but it's been nice to see him get a new lease of life um, and kind of just look comfortable and enjoying himself. And he's you know, certainly early on, some brilliant, brilliant results. So um, yeah, that's always good to see when you get a driver kind of getting a second chance and um, taking on some more confidence like that. You mentioned three drivers at the top there that were older on the grid. Um, in fact, the oldest uh, in some cases, with the exception of Alonso. And I think that there's... With Vettel and Ricardo specifically, the machinery, some bad luck, where they are in their careers, maybe this year or next year is their last year. But I'd heard a theory a couple of weeks ago that you know these these cars corner differently, they do a little bit different, and maybe some of the older guys it's it are, just aren't learning the new tricks. Is there anything to that, or is that just kind of completely separate? And 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 they should be able to to know these cars by now. Uh, 
it's an interesting one because that definitely plays a part. Um, like that theory is completely founded in in sense. If you look at when Sebastian Vettel first came into F1, he was alongside Mark Webber and they were really closely matched for a year or two with Red Bull. And then Red Bull had this invention called the blown diffuser, which basically meant to get more downforce to the rear of the car, you stayed on throttle. You wanted as much throttle application as you could get because that would speed up the airflow out of the exhausts, go into the diffuser, give you more grip. Someone like Mark Webber, as a driver who'd been around a lot longer than Seb, just really struggled with that because his brain told him to lift when the car got a little bit loose. But what you needed to do was put your foot down and it would give you more mm. grip. It was so counterintuitive. So Vettel made a clear step forward of Weber with that change of rule. Then 2014 hits, completely different type of car to drive, completely different regulations, totally different uh, need to have brilliant brake feel. And Vettel suddenly drops backwards and Ricardo is the new kid at Red Bull, nails the braking mm. system suddenly looks great. Those sorts of things do come and go from different drivers. And you're right, as the more experience you get, the more used to something you get, the harder it is to train yourself to do the opposite. And that's the thing. It's not about the older guys learning to do something. It's that they've actually generally gone through their careers doing something differently right. and having to retrain themselves. Whereas younger drivers are learning it for the first time. It's that little bit easier. So I think there's theory to that. I haven't heard any of these drivers say that that's been a problem this year. Um, but it, it may well have uh, played even just a small part. We, we're talking small margins with every driver here. You yeah. know, we're talking about you know maybe when Lewis has been lacking half a tenth at times in qualifying, and we're surprised Russell's beaten him or something like that because we're used to him being the the kind of lead man at Mercedes. That that could come from something like that. Okay, what did you make of Daniel Ricciardo releasing that statement this weekend, saying that he is committed through next year? Um, there was so much. I, I wouldn't want to say doubt about his career um, since we, you know, Nate Saunders on this podcast a couple weeks ago saying that the McLaren contract was actually way more ironclad than people thought because there was that weird news cycle where Zach had, Zach Brown had said, well, there's a mechanisms in which he doesn't, he, you know, the contract isn't valid. It's like, no, I, he's, he's definitely under contract for next year. He will be. Um, there had been questions about whether or not he wanted to just explore other things, maybe just try to drive the Dale Earnhardt NASCAR, uh, you know, car around for a little bit and, and just sort of live that kind of American life. I mean, I had somebody come up to me in, uh, in Miami and their, their idea was with ESPN getting the rights, you know, just pay Daniel Ricardo to retire and have him to be, have him be, I don't know if you guys know who Pat McAfee is, but like he's an ex NFL punter who just sort of, uh, you know, high energy gets, gets guys on his show, great entertainer. And like Ricardo could be that. And I'm not, I'm not saying Ricardo would be the F1 version of that. I'm saying he would be like, there's no reason he couldn't just show up in, you know, in Austin at college game day and, and, and whoop the crowd into a frenzy. Like there are some people in media who think Daniel Ricardo could be a U.S. media star. I mean, he, he's the most American driver on the grid. Okay, but let's put that aside. Um, did you uh, did you expect this kind of statement coming from him this weekend, Chris? Uh, I didn't think it needed it, uh, but it didn't surprise me because. He's always going to say that anyway. That the right the mechanism absolutely exists for McLaren to get rid of him if they want. Because just like you or I work for someone, if they come to you in the middle of your contract and say, "Look, we're really not happy. We want to let you go," you can't just go no and ignore it and pretend they're not saying it to you. Right. They're going to keep wanting to sit down and talk and find a way to come to a resolution. Now you might well be able to almost take them to court over it, but right. even then they might take you to court and you know right. pay you off whatever they're going to yeah, do. Or you get paid out, right? He'll, he'll get yeah. paid out a salary. Yeah. So. It's it's not that he doesn't have a, a firm contract, but contracts are always there in every walk of life to be broken. Um, and it normally just takes one side to initiate it. I think Daniel's saying it definitely won't be me. Uh, so if McLaren do want him out, they're going to have to come up with a solution. 
I, I think he will stay. I think McLaren want it to happen. I've spoken to Zach Brown a number of occasions. And you know, don't forget, Daniel's a massive, like massively marketable guy as well. Yes. So he's grateful the partners. Like if you have a successful Daniel Ricciardo in your team, you're onto a winner. So McLaren do want that to come good. They're not desperate to get rid of him, but they just can't carry him for too long. You know, it is going to hurt. I mean, if they lose out to Alpine this year, um, I think they'll point to Daniel's performances costing them because between Ocon and Norris, it's pretty close. And Alonso really just hasn't had the luck, but has performed well enough in the other car that Alpine, uh, I, to be honest, I kind of expect Alpine to come out of this weekend's race in France ahead of McLaren in the standing. So uh, Daniel needs to hit his stride soon, but I think he will want to stay put. What would really interest me about his career would be if this doesn't go well and mm-hmm. he ends up at the end of next season almost lacking offers or kind of looking around and being like, do mm. I want to go to another midfield team and try and prove myself again at 33, 34? Or, like you said, I want to embrace that Americana lifestyle that he does love. Don't forget McLaren have an IndyCar team and they love at the yeah. moment signing drivers to McLaren Racing and picking where they go. Yeah. I could see Daniel trying to talk to them and say, you know what? All right, at the end of this year, you can replace me with whoever you need from your IndyCar outfit or whoever else you want to sign but I'm interested in driving your IndyCar. That would be huge for IndyCar, huge for McLaren and IndyCar. So I also think McLaren would want to keep that sort of option on the back burner. Uh, that that would fit very well. And, and you're right. I mean, look, Daniel's doing a, a scripted um, TV series on Formula One where he's kind of the exec producer. He's yeah. absolutely embracing that kind of uh, interest for America in, from, from the media world. So I can see why that interest is there from other people to say he could do this, but he's... In the grand scheme of things, he's far too young as a racing driver and far too good yeah. still, even though he's struggling to walk away from it at this point. And there's, uh, you mentioned that there's international opportunities everywhere and racers find ways to race. I mean, even think about when Fernando Alonso was out of off the grid and he was still popping up pretty much every single weekend. And now you have things, uh, Kimi Raikkonen is, is going to do NASCAR um, on August 21st with this track house. This, this new team has this thing called Project 91, which is they're going to take an international star, I think at least once a year and put them in this car and have them race. Feels like, I remember when that was announced or people texting me saying like, this guy gotta be ricardo um it won't be at this point it'll be kimmy but then you know next year it feels or the year after it feels natural that you're going to see some of these guys who want to expand their brand in america do more indycar do more nascar do more one-offs and stunts and and things for for instagram um or or whatever um vettel is this is it, is it about that time for him i can't tell to be honest because there's flashes of the good vettel where you yeah. go yeah he's still an asset to aston martin i think the team want to keep him um, he is a full-time world champion. He also is great as a spokesperson and therefore yes. he's reflecting well on a brand that, don't forget, is sponsored by Aramco um, and, <laughs> is, and is filthy, filthy rich. So right. um, for them to have that positivity um, around them because of Vettel is actually quite a good place to be. Um, and I think they'd like to keep him. I think from his perspective, though, it's the fact that they are down in terms of um, pace. Yeah, sorry. So my dog's just been That's let fine. back in. He's going to go crazy for a second. <laughs> He's been at daycare. We, we love do- we love dogs on pods. Well, Mon- Monty's on the pod, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not paying right. enough attention. Am I? Yeah, sorry. It's because it's so hot. We sent him to like a daycare. Yeah, yeah. Keep cool. So, so Vettel. So I think part of the problem is the lack of competitiveness from the team itself because yeah. Seb can't hang around forever waiting for the team to get competitive. He can't wait for them to start winning races if it's not going to be sometime soon. And the way this year's panned out, it doesn't look like it's going to be sometime soon. So I think that's more his decision is, does he want to stay in what's likely going to be a midfield team for a couple more years 
and still have that platform to kind of speak his mind and try and help improve the world? Um, or does he want to go and do other things to do that or, you know, just step back from it completely because he does quite enjoy a more private social life um, than most. So I think that's the big decision for him. It's not going to be based on um, on his actual performances and form. I think there's been enough from him this year that that says to Aston that they want to keep him and from him, if he had a more competitive car, that he'd be strong in it. But um, at the moment, the car just doesn't really fit the bill. I was surprised. I shouldn't have been because I saw how thoughtful he was in Miami. And obviously, I've listened to a lot of his interviews going back for years. But I was in London when he was on Question Time, which, if, if anybody doesn't know, is basically the British version of Meet the Press. I would say where it's it's just a lot of it's a lot of politicians, right, Chris? That that's mostly mm-hmm. what it is. Yep. Yep. And and so um, he was on it, and he he was the best guy. Like it was a bunch of other politicians, and Sebastian Vettel was like the most thoughtful person that maybe maybe he should be running a country like it was it was really 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 good and i don't know a ton about british politics but i could tell um and and reading some of the reviews that he was he was doing very very well and you wonder does he want to pursue that full time or does and this is this happens all the time in the nba and the nfl guys want to stick around because they know they want that platform still yeah yeah that's the question that's the question he's got yeah, if you think he's on question time because he's still an active Formula One driver, uh, it would have been a lot harder to get him on there if it was former F1 driver, Sebastian right. Vettel. Um, and that's something that I think he's probably wrestling with, white, no, wrestling with right now, easy for me to say. Um, <laughs> but it's also going to be, like he's still going to get the enjoyment from racing. And he says he does. Gets in the car, puts his helmet on. He says he absolutely loves it. And he's even, like Silverstone was a great example. He managed to um, run a um, zero emissions fuel in an, old 1990s um, Formula 1 car, Nigel Mansell's old Williams, that sounded amazing. It sounded just like it did back then, but it's not running on the same fuel. And he's saying, look, what we can advance, like we can essentially go back to awesome high revving, naturally aspirated engines that sound incredible. Um, And the only real concern is noise pollution because you can find fuels now that will power them um, as they, as they are, you just, it's a drop in fuel. Now, if he can push F1 in that direction, he'll feel like he's also making a huge change to the world because yes. if F1 implements it, then maybe road cars implement it and you have a huge, huge impact. Again, look at Nico Rosberg. He retired at the peak of his career as a world champion and has gone off trying to promote green energies and electric cars and things like that and has kind of faded from relevancy because he's not got the platform he used to have as a driver. And he's banned from the paddock for being unvaccinated. There's that too, yeah. Um, All right. uh, Let's very quickly do a second half preview. We haven't even talked about really Red Bull or Ferrari. Uh, Any anything you see coming other than Red Bull wins Ferrari? I mean, Ferrari's pace was interesting because I I was listening to some discussions over the past week. I mean, it's not like Ferrari got quicker. They've always been pretty fast the whole season. Just been reliability problems. Uh, We know what this looks like. Are you seeing anything different in the second half other than uh, close races and and Red Bull maintains their advantage? Uh, I'd like to think the second part changing. Um, mm. I think yeah, it's actually, I'm in the middle of writing a column on it right now for Racer where there is, there's a title race to be had. We're being teased by it at the moment because as you say, there's been big swings. If you think of the first three races, where Leclerc was after a win, well, two wins in the second place and Max retiring twice, huge advantage in the standings. Everyone thinks, oh, it's going to be a boring season where, okay, it's a different winner, but Leclerc walks it. And then the momentum shift was so quick that there was no point where we had that tension of the two of them being closely matched in points and in performance or in races. Normally, one of them was, well, Max was coming through and and closing that gap quickly and Ferrari were tripping over themselves. That, I think, might be able to change. I think the last two races have shown it. Both Ferrari wins. They've developed the car quite well. 
Matia Bonotto points to a new rear wing that kind of has put them uh, more on a level playing field with Red Bull in race pace. And from there, I think if over these next two weeks in France and Hungary, Leclerc can outscore Verstappen in some way, shape or form, mm. then that will start to just put a seed of doubt in Red Bull's mind because that will have been over a period of four straight races that they'll have been outscored. Um, the gap's currently 38 points, so it would at least drop. Um, if, say, say Leclerc wins both races, but Verstappen's second in both with the fastest lap. It's going to take another 12 off him. So that comes down to 26, which you can achieve in one race weekend. And that's when you start feeling like, okay, this, this could genuinely change all on one race, all on one moment. So I think that's where um, I still pin my hopes that if these next two races go on the balance of play towards Ferrari slightly, then there is a fight to be had as we head into the second part of the season. And as you say, that Ferrari is quick enough. It's just them being consistent with it, which I don't have faith they'll do, but I, I kind of want to believe they'll do. And you wonder what changes if Mercedes actually gets in the mix and whether or not if they win a couple races and steal, who do they steal points from on any given weekend? I mean, it's, it's a week-to-week thing at this point. I'm fascinated to see it. Uh, Chris Medlin, Racer F1 correspondent. He's also on SiriusXM. He has, he has a great dog, it looks like. What kind of dog was that? He's a cavapoo called Monty, who um, has been dealing with the heat pretty well, actually, but he's just come oh. back from a day jumping in paddling pools, so... Uh, he's now, he's actually absolutely chilled out. He's very good at knowing when we're broadcasting. So he's like, I've got to be quiet now. He's a pro. Monty's a pro. He's dealing with the heat well. Chris Mellon, thank you so much for coming on the Ring Ref One show. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Mobile One. The Mobile One brand knows podcasts are a great escape. You can listen to people talking about living and maybe even driving, but of course, there's no substitute for the real thing. So the next time you're looking for an escape, try an actual escape. Take this podcast for a ride in the car and immerse yourself in the drive because sometimes the best way to escape reality is to truly live in it. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash the ringer to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Armorall. When you want the best for your car, preparation is everything. That's why teams like Oracle Red Bull Racing use Armorall to prep their team vehicles. From interior cleaning and protectant wipes to car wash and wheel and tire cleaner, Armorall, America's number one trusted auto appearance brand, has what it takes to keep the two-time defending champions looking their best inside and out. And get this, now through May 31st, you can get $5 back when you spend $20 prepping your car like the Oracle Red Bull Racing Team. All you have to do is upload your receipt to Armorall's website after you buy. Visit armorall.com for program details and redemption. Terms apply. Armorall, chosen by champions. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, Pierre Gasly, Alpha Tauri driver, F1 star. He's got probably the best background in the history of this show. He's in the south of France right now. He had a wedding in the middle of this week. What's going on, Pierre? 
I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Um, yeah, I had a, the wedding of one of my best friends. Uh, it's actually the first wedding, first wedding of one of my friends, which is kind of scary. I feel like I'm uh, I'm in a, in the middle of uh, in a sort of transition into my life. Uh, you know, where people around me starts to get married, um, which always um, which is always a bit scary. But no, it was great. It was fantastic. And then now I'm spending a bit of uh, off time with my family. I was going to ask about that because you're already traveling every single week for something. And now you're in your, and to, when you get into your late twenties, Pierre, and when you get there, you will understand everybody in your life is getting married. You're going to be on the road <laughs> constantly, dude. You're going to be just, it's going to be, you're going to double your travel somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I kind of understood that. So I have a big family. I have, uh, four older brothers, uh, from 40, I should know that 43 years old, um, until like 30, I think the youngest is 35. And uh, yeah, I, I could see that coming and I'm 26 now. So yeah. I know it's a start of a start of a new life. I'm far away from the wedding. You know, I'm still um, <laughs> enjoying my life and it's, it's all good, all good for me. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite a, quite a life, obviously being F1 driver, you know, you're always on the, always on the roads. Um, yeah. It feels like F1 driver life is a bit of a vagabond uh, yeah. life, always traveling around, but I, I do love it. So it's, um, it's, it's great. Yeah. What's your number one travel tip for jet lag, for any of that stuff? Like, cause you, I don't think there's anybody, any human, any 26 year old, any 20 year old who travels more than an F1 driver. If you're, if, what is the number one guide to, 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 uh, to traveling that much beer? Uh, well, never unpack your luggage. You know, I just keep, <laughs> I just keep everything in and then, uh, it just goes in the, yeah, just clean and then straight back in the luggage. I don't have time to put anything in the wardrobe or, or, or anywhere. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I feel people stress a lot about traveling. I just do, do not care. I just need to go from A to B and whatever happens there, uh, you know, my brain is off. I just give the passport, go through security and, uh, yeah, just need to go with the flow and, um, and try to, yeah, not get pressure from anywhere. And then uh, it's all going to be good, but obviously it's tiring. You know, it's, uh, I can feel now I have people around me, uh, coming part of my team, um, coming, uh, to some races sometimes with me. And I just feel how brutal it is because yeah. I never had time to, to get used to it. I had time since I'm 13 years old, uh, to get used to that life. So, um, it, it does feel normal, but it's, uh, it, it's quite a hectic life. Yeah. Let's talk about the season. So everybody coming into this season was talking about the regulation changes and we've seen a, a lot of differences. What's the biggest thing that surprised you about this generation of cars, Pierre, just through the first half of this season? Um, I would say it's probably not as different as people, uh, could think. Uh, in terms of driving, it's very similar. The only thing I would say which has changed quite dr drastically is the you know, dispurposing. Yes. So we see the cars like moving up and down, uh, down the street. And it does feel weird, you know, driving uh, 200 and in miles is probably like 220 miles uh, an hour. And then you're going just jumping like a kangaroo inside the inside the F1 car. It doesn't feel nice at all. But um, I would say that's the main thing. And then we we're driving extremely close to the to the ground. Like these cars needs to be literally touching the the track uh, on the ground, and it does hit us quite a lot, quite hard on the bike. So so the the spine is going through quite um, quite a rough time this year. A lot of physio session. Um, but in terms of driving, it's still the same. You know, like still uh, trying to be as much as possible on throttle and, uh, and try to avoid the brake. So, so you don't, you don't, you don't have to change your driving style at all, really. You, 
I, I do feel like as a driver, you constantly need to adapt because the car is always different. You know, even from session to session, the wind is going to change. Your tire is going to degrade. So even through a, an entire race, I'm always adapt, adapting and changing my uh, my driving. I think that's one of the, the strengths of F1 driver. You always got to adapt to the conditions. It's never the same. Like the wind's going to be different, temperature, your tire, the car is going to behave differently. So um, so you you got to always adapt. Like anywhere in life, you know, any situation, you, you meet people. People are very different. F1 driver needs to have the same approach with your car. Just need to adapt to the condition that you, you face. So you had dinner with Michael Jordan um, ahead of, and I, I and I was at your press conference in Miami. It's all anybody wanted to talk about, which is, I mean, you have to understand, Michael Jordan is the biggest star in the history of this country <laughs> in athletics, and and you had dinner with him, and everybody was jealous. How did that even? Well, you come- can see the smile on my face. You can <laughs> see the smile on my face. I don't, I don't think there was anything um, that I I could have uh, liked more than than that. I mean, it was so inspiring. I was already a big fan of. Uh, MJ before to to meet him. Um, I did watch the series on Netflix, like everyone, and I found the series like probably one of the best um, up to date on on Netflix. And um, I had the chance. I had a new sponsor at the the start of the the year, um, who is business partner with him, Raj Raj Mantena. And uh, I did tell him, you know, I have a massive poster of Michael in my driver room, uh, which I always um, look at before to jump in the car. And I told him, like, I just I'm really inspired and I love Michael. And he was like, ah, I'm a business partner. I see him, you know, once every every month. Like, uh, we'll organize something. And I thought he was talking crap to me. I was like, it's no joke. If, if this this happens, uh, I'll be the happiest guy in the world. And um, and yeah, it did happen. Um, I had dinner with, uh, with MJ, like, just before the Miami Grand Prix. Three hours dinner. And um, yeah, it was just incredible to exchange with him about his career, mentality, the leadership that... Uh, that he had and still has uh, how competitive he is. And um, it was uh, just a, a magical moment. You said then that you were surprised, or not surprised, but you were impressed with how much he knew about Formula One. He is obviously involved in NASCAR. He obviously you know, grew up in North Carolina, which is a racing hub in America. Uh, what was the thing he said to you about F1 that most impressed you that, about his knowledge? Um, well, he knew all the driver's name. Um, even, even the drivers that finished last, you know, <laughs> you got, it's not usually the one that you hear always on TV. You always yeah. hear about the winners and, and, you know, the people that finish on the podiums, but you never hear about the guys that finish at the back of the grid. And he did mention a couple of names and I was like, you're definitely a big fan if you know <laughs> these guys. And, um, and then, yeah, he just knew everything about the strategies, uh, everything that happened, like, uh, especially with the battle, the title fight, you know, between Lewis and, and Max last year. Um, all the incidents that happened and, and he is very opinionated about yeah. everything. So, you know, he had his views on the, how it should have been, all the situations should have been uh, handled. And um, yeah, he's a big motorsport fan. As you said, he's got a NASCAR team. Yeah. He's a lot really involved in there. And, um, and then, yeah, I was just, I was just surprised. I didn't know uh, he knew about it that much. And we talked about my career. We had a couple of, of, uh, tips on, you know, negotiations and how to handle contracts, et cetera. So it was, it was just great to, to hear all his experience and his knowledge and, uh, and, uh, yeah, to exchange about that. Did you use those negotiations? The tips? I think I'll bring him for my next meeting with, the, <laughs> <laughs> you know, for, for my future contract. I'll probably bring him in the room. Yep. It was too good. Yeah. Yep. Um, <laughs> all right. So I want to ask you about one thing about F1 that's unique is that you guys were, a lot of you guys were in carts together from the time you were very, very, very young. 
Um, and there's no other sport like that. Maybe golf, you see everybody on the junior circuit, um, but it's different. You don't need to know other people's golfing styles. You're not on the track together and stuff like that. I'm curious, when you're seeing someone that you've been carting against for, for 15 years and you know their driving style so well, does that help? Does that hurt? Do you know that? Is it over familiarity? Do you sort of say, hey, you know, in my, in my brain, I know what this guy's going to do all the time because I've, I've been behind him or, or in front of him for 15 years. Like what, how does that play out when you're so familiar with some of these guys, Pierre? I, I will say for especially my generation, uh, you know, I raced with Max when yeah. I was younger, um, with Charles, with Albon, with Russell, like this kind of, uh, this kind of generation, we kind of grew up together and we knew we will face each other also in the future. We didn't know whether it will be in a Formula One or other series, but uh, we knew we had we were sort of different compared to others and uh, like uh, had um, some some sort of talents. But uh, yeah, it's kind of fun to just all end up in Formula One racing for for the World Championship in Formula One. And I would say what you um, use the most is more like the aggressivity of each driver. You know, drivers that are going to take it over the over the line and are going to like push it slightly yeah. further than what's allowed and other drivers that's going to give you extra room. And then based on that, then after you can also manage the way that you race um, and, and, and try different. Uh, yeah, it's more like you, you manage your aggressivity with other driver based on what you know and the way they race and what you've learned from the past. There are some guys, you know, that once you start fighting, if it gets hitted, there's a high chance you guys going to crash because it's no one wants to give up and, and it doesn't end up in a, in a nice situation. And some others that are a bit more, uh, you know, they'll give you like extra room, extra room and just what's needed for you to, to go by. And, uh, I feel it's, yeah, you adjust your, your kind of racing. One thing about being an F1 driver, you have to do workouts. I don't think the common fan really understands how intense they can be. What's the Only number not. one workout drill thing you have to do, whether it's your neck or whatever, whatever it has to be, what's the number one hardest thing you have to do in your workout regimen? Well, I think what we do very differently to other athletes, I got to work on, on my neck every single day. And, uh, and, and people do look at me with a weird look in the room when I start to put bands around my neck and, and pull <laughs> weights with my neck. And they're like, what is this guy doing? Like, <laughs> that's clearly not something you see very often in the, in, in the gym, but, uh, it's a very intense uh, workout and probably, as you say, way more, more intense than people who think of. Um, I just finished my workout like two hours ago. I went in the gym two hours. So it's six days, six days a week. Um, some days, two sessions. Need to do a lot of cardio because the races are extremely long, yeah. one and a half hour, two hours. And we lose up to three kilos during a race. Yeah. Um, a lot of people get jealous of that because yeah, I was gonna say I, I could I could do yeah. an F one race right now, drop a couple of kilos. Yeah. <laughs> Especially after summer, it, it works out perfectly. But uh, no, it's it's with, very with wedding season, maybe, Pierre. You can just pig out yeah. and then just go do do, do a couple of races. You'll be fine. It, it, that, that's the only reason. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's um yeah, it's you know the focus you need to have at this this uh, at such speed is very extreme, and that's why you can't have any struggle on the physical side you need all your mental and hold your mind into one that's specific target to drive as fast as you can and really feel everything inside the car that you can so it's a lot of cardio a lot of running uh swimming cycling and then a lot of time in the gym just doing like endurance and um you know strength exercise one more before we get to a lightning round um france is next on the calendar 
So home race for you. Tell me about that track, what we need to know going into that week. Um, well, it's the best track of the calendar because I'm <laughs> French and this is in France. <laughs> um, well, it, it's actually not. It's, I'm sad to say that, but I, I'm yeah, being honest. It's not the, it's, it's a very, you know, a lot of runoff areas. Yeah. So it's, it's the opposite of Monaco, for example, like you can drive as crazy as you want, you know, you'll, you'll run off the track, you can come back. So, um, it does bring some opportunities for racing, uh, being side by side. And even if you be, if you, if you are pushed off the track, you can always come back to the next corner. And, um, it does bring some, um, some, some good racing, uh, very kind of flowy track, uh, quite high speed. There is this very famous corner called, uh, Le Bossé. Which is a 180 corner at what like hundreds, 140 miles an hour. So your neck, especially this side, that's why I'm working a lot now these these days because next race is going to be quite tough for the a tough one. And uh, yeah, it's in France. You know, it's a special one for me. Home race, a lot of support, a lot of uh, probably the last one in France because I don't think probably not sure yet whether it's going to be on the calendar next season. But uh, a lot of French people are going to be there, and uh, yeah, it's obviously gonna gonna feel uh, pretty special. I want to ask what the calendar changes because there's a lot of concern, I guess, from old school F1 fans about places like Spa, places like Monaco, frankly, that there have been discussions about. How do you feel about the new markets versus the old ones? I mean, Vegas is coming in, obviously. There's going to be three American races. How do you view how you want the future of the F1 schedule look like, Pierre? Um, personally, I want to keep like that real DNA that we got from, from F1 from the past with these iconic racetracks and you know, Monaco is clearly one of them. Um, it's probably the most known around the world. Um, you know, Spa is my favorite track on the yeah. calendar. Is as a driver, I, I really hope the, we, we we get it every season. But I think it's great just to see the popularity and the exposure that Formula One is getting now these days, um, thanks to Netflix and thanks to yeah. what the organization is doing. Um, you know, we had Miami this year, which was insane. Um, American people starts to really love Formula One, which is great to see because a couple uh, years ago, still when I said what well, I was a Formula One driver, nobody had any idea of what what it was, and uh, they all they all thought I was a NASCAR driver. Or something. <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't even dare um, explaining what F1 was, and now everybody knows about it, or a lot of people knows about it, and and uh, yeah, you see all these fans, these new fans coming into the sport, and I think that's that's fantastic. Next year we we have Vegas, yeah. um, which is gonna be uh, I think an incredible uh, sport event. Everybody uh, talks about it already. And uh, I think it's important to get this new location, um, which uh, have a huge potential um, in terms of uh, in terms of business and in terms of show. But it's important also to keep the, the old ones, which are, which are very iconic, like the one we mentioned in Monaco Inspire. All right, three quick lightning round questions. First one, if you could change one thing about F1, what would it be? Ah, I will make all the cars way way similar in terms of performance mm. i'll just bring all the pack all the pack clothed together you know like you either give uh, the same red bull to all the 20 guys just change the, the logo on the front and then put ferrari mercedes but just like give a much clothed car in terms of performance uh give me a skill you've improved on over the course of your career that maybe wasn't a strength and now is a strength uh, podcast. I was really bad when I started. <laughs> <laughs> no, You're in the media. right place. 
Media is a big media is a big part of our life now, and uh, it gets uh, you know with the the years you get a bit more comfortable. But I wasn't the kind of guy to be like all out on the screen, and even when you see yourself on on Netflix, you know, uh, first time it, it it's kind of weird, and then uh, it's still weird. I must say, I still admit when I see myself on Netflix, I'm like, yeah, this is wrong. But anyway, you you, you do it. Is uh, is there a podcast you want to go on? Like, is there a podcast you um, listen to? There are, there are a couple, there are a couple, I can, can mention the name now, but clearly it's something that I enjoy. I just enjoy the conversation. Yeah. In dialogue is, is great. And, uh, I had a, I had a great time with you. Great. So. <laughs> Last thing. Um, so we do a thing called club Kevin, which is your favorite person in the world right now. Could be a TV person that you're uh, a TV show that you're watching movie. You just saw doesn't matter. Somebody just read about in the newspaper. Doesn't matter. We induct this person. Sorry. Will, Will Smith. I love Will Smith. Even after the slap. Well, I must say that the charisma that guy uh, has, like since I'm a kid, you know, I just, I just really liked Will Smith, and 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 to me, he's got like a, a talent uh, for acting, which is, uh, which is just outstanding. So amazing. Yeah, I must say, I, I, I like it. Doesn't mean I agree with everything that he does, <laughs> but I'm purely, talking, I'm purely talking as an actor, and uh, and and skills uh, is is outstanding. Amazing. All right. Well, dinner with Will Smith is next after MJ. Pierre Gasly, thank you so much for coming yeah. on the Day, bud. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.